Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I am here today with Peter Diamandis, and this is Exponential Wisdom. Peter, the subject today is robots, and when you look at the horror stories, the way technology is projected on the screen and Hollywood and the television and everything else, the number one villains of technology always turn out to be robots. Do you have any insight why that particular piece of technology tends to be the one that has the biggest scare factor attached to it. I blame Hollywood. It's just so easy. The fact of the matter is Hollywood has got this run of dystopian movies where the world is terrible and robots are in the center and all of that. And the fact of the matter is most all robots today make our world a much, much better place. And people don't realize it. We've been using robots effectively in all our plants. The fact that you can buy a Honda Civic for... 15 or 18K is a result of the fact that robots build these things. The fact that we feed the planet is a result of robots helping us till the soil and plant and harvest our plants. It's just a matter of this industrial revolution, this robotic revolution of late, helps us do things in our planet much more effectively. And I think robots are going to be a critical part of our future much the same way that the computer, the digital phone, digital camera, internet, all of these things have been. And I think 20 years from now, people are going to say, do not take that robot away from me. I need it. You know, it's, it's going to be a critical part of our lives. And as soon as something becomes really great at doing one specific thing, we stop calling it an AI or stop calling it a robot and we give it a specific name. We can call it a Roomba or call it a surgical assistant. But I think robots are going to be a critical part of our economy and improving the quality of life and allowing people to stop doing the really shitty jobs. Can I say that in the podcast? I think so. You can, because everybody has a personal experience of that, so it's not considered <laughs> profanity. Anyway, Peter, there's lots of technology that we have that do things very, very specifically. Clocks keep time, and we've always had that experience. One of the ways that I make technology very friendly to me is that it's just human teamwork that has been tested out so well and has been refined so well that you can now make that human teamwork automatic so that you can free up the human beings to do a higher level of teamwork. But you're talking with all the leading innovators in the robot period. When does a robot actually become a robot? I mean, is there a definition that tells somebody, you know, we've crossed over here from just a single-use technology to it's now doing something different that we can give the name robot to it? I think that's a great question because it's a ill-defined term, just like artificial intelligence, and they go together, right? AI and robotics go hand in hand. Google is an AI. Siri is an AI, but you give it a name and it does a very specific thing and you don't think about it as artificial intelligence anymore. Mm -hmm. But for robots, I just recently, Dan, took a group of my most supportive benefactors from the XPRIZE Foundation. We took 50 of them. These are a group of centimillionaires and billionaires who back our prizes, support the foundation, our innovation board, our vision circle members. And we do an adventure trip every year. And the last adventure trip we did was on robotics last March. The next one we're going to do in March of 2016 is going to be on AI in the brain. But in this past March, we went and we were hosted by Dean Kamen, one of the great innovators of our time. And we went and visited all the top robotics companies. And interesting thing that happened last in 2014 was Google bought 
eight of the top robot companies and brought them into Google. And we went and visited some of those, Boston Dynamics being one of them. We went and visited Aldebaran and Rethink Robotics. Rodney Brooks with a top roboticist. And there's an interesting situation. I think that robots are not as advanced as people think they really are. DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the United States, has been moving things along after the nuclear disaster at Fukushima and the inability for sending humans and the unavailability of robots to go in there and help shut down the leakage of radiation. Mm -hmm. DARPA's gotten very focused on building humanoid-like robots that can go into dangerous situations. So we have a lot of drivers there, but interestingly enough, one of the most interesting uses of robots is what Rodney and Rethink Robotics is doing. It turns out that China is one of the biggest consumers of robots. You wouldn't think that, right? And it turns out that because the labor rates are going up as the quality of life is going up and China wants to remain efficient in its ability to manufacture at low cost, it's starting to bring in robotics. So the challenge becomes as the labor rate continues to go up, as minimum wage goes up around the world and robotics become more and more efficient, there's a turning point, a crossover point where the question is, do you hire people at $10, $20 an hour, or do you hire robots for three or four bucks an hour that work 24-7, don't have a bad date and come in grumpy the next morning, or don't have to do drug testing for? So I think it's an interesting future ahead where we're going to have companies that are going to make very difficult choices about do they hire humans or robots and the way my friends talk about this is they say, well, I think we're going to have robots do the jobs that no one wants to do and allow humans to do the jobs that are upskilled, perhaps in partnership with robots or AI that they want to do. No one loves cleaning toilets or stocking boxes on shelves. They just do that to get health insurance. I mean, what do you think about the future of labor as robots become more efficient? Well, my experience is that Humans are really, really great at adjusting to new conditions when they know there's no alternative. In other words, there's a pushback with a lot of the population of saying, you know, I'm just not going to go along with that. The reason why they can say that for a while is they've got an alternative not to do it. But once you get to a point where there isn't any other alternative to do it, then humans adjust very, very quickly. I think one thing is that the educational system is leaving large numbers of people really, really confused about just what's happening. And this actually happened in the late 1800s in the massive shift from the agricultural population to the cities in the United States. McCormick's Reaper, which was the real breakthrough technology in agriculture, you know, one reaper with a driver and a team of horses could replace 20 human beings. There was massive, massive unemployment in the United States in the late 1870s, 1880s, because it was an agricultural country. But what happened within a generation is all those people had shifted over to a much higher paying industrial labor where they were involved in factory work and everything that was coming out of the factory, they became distributors. There was just this vast ecosystem. So my feeling is the same thing will happen with robots if the education is really good of getting people prepared. And I just want to ask you, Peter, because you went on this great tour of the robots, 
When you talk to the people on the factory floor who are actually dealing with robots, if you had to give sort of a quick consensus of what their experience was of being a human being in teamwork with robots, what was the general consensus that you got back from these individuals? It's a great question, Dan, very insightful. Rethink Robotics in particular, what they've built is a robot that can pick up things and pack boxes and can work on factory production lines. And what they've done is they've designed it so that the person who programs the robot is the factory worker. So they've upgraded the factory worker from someone who stops doing a repetitive job that's boring and mindless to someone who is actually able to program the robot, oversee it from quality control, and increase the overall productivity. So they feel like they've upgraded their work, and the overall factory's capability has gone up substantially as well. So it's about making our economy more efficient in total and giving people a better, more fun purpose in life. So it's actually a win-win. It's just the lag time that's the problem. There's always people that my phrase for them are alert, curious, responsive, and resourceful. They spot changes really quickly. They get curious about the change. They become very responsive personally to the change, and they become very resourceful. So that part of the population, you know, is always going to be on top of things. They love change. They love adjusting to change. The problem is the lag time where people were told all you have to do is learn this one thing and it's the responsibility of other people not to change it and to protect your income and protect your lifestyle. And I think that's the biggest political and social issue of our times is the messages that don't you worry you're going to be taken care of once you get to 18 or 19. It's society's responsibility to take care of you. And I see this is epic. In earthquake terms, they call it a tectonic shift. You suddenly get a, an entire shift underneath society where, look, your best buddy is going to be run by artificial intelligence, and it's going to learn from you, and you're going to learn from it, and there's going to be a partnership going forward. And I call it the partnership between humans where we've developed an amazing intelligence as human beings, but we're now taking parts of our intelligence and in the case of robots, we're taking parts of our muscles and we're putting them outside of ourselves and we're creating a teamwork with ourselves in a limited, specialized form outside of ourselves. And that's a huge, huge philosophical shift about what it means to be human and what it means to expand your possibilities as a human. Let me share with you, if I might, some of the more interesting applications I'm seeing in robotics right now and where I think things are going to be going over the next 10 years. I think the audience would be interested in that. I'd love your feedback on which you find most compelling. One is a company out of Singularity University called Fellow Robots. And what they've done is they've built a robot. It's currently in one of Lowe's department stores. It's called Oshbot. And Osh will greet you and ask you in the store and ask you what you're looking for. And it will take you to the aisle and show you exactly where it is. And if they don't have it, it will take your order right there. And of course, it can speak multiple languages and knows everything. So it's customer support in the store. And at night, the Oshbot will actually go through the store between midnight and 6 a.m. and take inventory of what's been sold, what's there, so you get perfect inventory control. So those are one kind of consumer-facing and company-facing robots. I think we're going to see a lot of robots in the healthcare space, both in home and at the hospital. 
I know that the cost of a person who's a octogenarian going to an old age home is like $60,000 to $80,000 a year. And the reason that most people go to an old age home is that they are no longer take care of themselves at home. In other words, they're not able to get out of bed or go to the bathroom or get dressed. And a lot of companies are working on that side because if I can put a robot in home with my aging mom or dad that helps them and takes care of them and watches out for them, it's a huge liberating force to stay in your home. I have a robot at home. You have the same robot not far from mm-hmm. you at Strategic Coach, mm-hmm. my Beam robot, right. which I use to teleport into my home. Mm-hmm. We're seeing robots in surgery. I think in the future, if you're a patient, you go into a hospital, you need a routine surgery, and a human doctor comes at you to do the surgery, you're going to go, oh, no, 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 I do not want that human <laughs> operating on me. I want the robot that's done it a thousand times perfectly. Autonomous cars are robots. I'm seeing a lot of robots enter the education space. Kids who've got learning disabilities, if you have a robot that is tuned to your child's needs and can become able to help them and focus them, there's a big opportunity in robotics in personalized education. And then finally, delivery robots. Obviously, drones are robots. I have a number of companies, one out of SU, that's working on the last mile delivery of UPS, FedEx, whatever it might be. So we're not quite the Star Wars universe now at the diversity of robots, but we're going to see robots playing a huge number of roles in our lives pretty soon. I'll mention one more, which I'm interested in, is the robot that cleans my house, like the Roomba. But imagine a robot in your house that initially isn't driven by an AI, but is driven by someone in India who is 12 hours ahead, and at midnight, it's noon, and they can come into your home and they can look at the photo of what the home looks like when it's clean and can clean everything while you sleep. I think that's going to be an interesting sort of telepresence mm-hmm. robotics application this decade. Two things about what you're saying, Peter. One of the things I'm really struck by with the U.S., because I'm born American, but I've actually lived outside of the U.S. for 44 years now. There's a lot of talk around the world about America, both pro and con. But the one thing that always struck me that is really, really unique about the states, and I think this more as I go on, is the United States has the most venturesome consumers on the planet. So all these technologies that you're talking about will actually be tested out by individuals who say, well, I want that robot for my home. I don't care if anybody else gets it, but I want it. And every breakthrough, actually, there's a group of venturesome consumers that said, well, I want to be the first person who has this. And then it starts, the breakthrough example starts getting spread by imitation. People will say, well, they've got a robot. Why can't we get a robot? And then it sort of spreads out through the population. The other thing that really strikes me is that the most advanced use of robots that I've seen so far is actually in the military, where I don't care how brave you are, there's just some impossibly dangerous situations where if you've spent an enormous amount of money training a human being, you don't want all that investment wiped out in a matter of seconds because of explosives or a bullet or something like that. So my feeling is that 20 years from now, you won't see any pilots anymore in Air Force and Navy planes. All the fighters are going to be robots. I mean, we already have the drones. But the other things like IEDs, you know, where you have guerrilla warfare, 
you're going into houses and that, if anybody saw American Sniper, how incredibly dangerous that work is. And it'll be robots. They'll be sending robots in. I think that the military has a keen interest in this. Absolutely. And it's going to be, I think, driving a lot of the ethical and moral conversations as well, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, we have... 50,000 automotive deaths, I think, per year in, in the United States and worldwide. The number is somewhere between a half a million and a million automobile-related homicides and deaths. So the question is, what happens the first time that an autonomous car kills somebody? It will be one death. It's a travesty. We have as many as we do. And there'll be, I think, massive reduction in the automotive death rate as autonomous cars come online, right? Mm-hmm. I show this plot that looks at automotive deaths and airline deaths, and airline deaths have effectively gone to zero Mm -hmm. globally because of the autonomous systems and the control systems and all of that. Cars are still, they've dropped precipitously over the last hundred years, but they still hover at this half a million to a million a year. But autonomous cars can take that effectively down to zero. But the first time that a robot is responsible for death, I think we're going to have a lot of outcry Mm-hmm. Of course, we forget the fact that there are deaths that occur in elevators, and those are robots, but this first visible one is going to be a hard one and a lot of discussion and debate. Yeah. See, I've always believed that there's a god of the automobile, and it requires 40,000 sacrifices a year for us to have the <laughs> benefit of it. You see, it's going to call that whole theology into question, you know. <laughs> but most people accept, oh, you know, it's 40,000, 50,000 people killed a year in automobiles. And the reason is because the freedom is so great. The upside of the automobile is so great that we're willing to do that because there's no option except to do it. And what you're suggesting, Peter, is with the robot-driven self-driving cars, the autonomous cars, that basically now we can question for the first time. People don't question things unless they have a solution. That's just one of the ways that our brain does it. If there's no answer, we don't ask the question. But if there is an answer, then we start asking the questions a great deal. It's insane to me that a 16, 17, or 18-year-old kid behind the wheel of a 5,000-pound vehicle going 60 or 70 miles an hour who's got a few hours' experience on their hands is allowed to do that. And then my father, who's 87, 88, who's got reasonably advanced Alzheimer's because he lives in Florida, gets an automatic renewal of his driver's license, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things are immoral and unethical when there is an alternative in hand. And I think yeah. people should have the freedom of transportation, but man, oh man, I think that people have to look at it a different way very soon. See, I see a future where everybody's using autonomous cars, but then there's the people who are held on to their Ford 150s because they'll never give up their vehicles. <laughs> sure enough. <laughs> so, you know, robots are coming. They're coming strong. They're going to become mm-hmm. more and more functional. I think for people to look at robots, it's three things are driving robotics right now. It is better and better sensors that are becoming cheaper and mm-hmm. cheaper. These sensors, most of them in your cell phone for seeing, hearing, feeling. So that's one part. The other is computational power and AI. So the robots Mm -hmm. become able to understand the sensory inputs and make decisions. And then the cost of manufacturing is plummeting with 3D printing and design. And I think we're going to start to see sort of a Darwinian explosion of robots, a lot of stuff that's going to be experimented with and tried. And a few things are going to catch on and do well. 
and transform how we live our lives and how we start taking robots for granted. But they are here to stay. They're moving out of the factories, into our homes, into our jobs, into where we work. And I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. <laughs> well, they're teammates. That's my feeling. One thing that might be really interesting, Peter, on a future podcast is the number of ways that people are already using robots on a daily basis and they don't even realize it. The average person in a city is probably being supported by dozens and dozens of robots and doesn't even understand it. And I think that if we kind of explain it, like an ATM is a robot, basically. Sure. To me, it's a robot. I just love ATMs, especially when I'm overseas. I grew up before television, so things like ATMs are really a big deal for me. Well, I think you're absolutely right. We don't see the robots in our lives. We also don't see the AI in our lives. And if you were to turn those both off, effectively, it moves us backwards 50 years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things that we enjoy are, are a result of that kind of technology. Yeah. But just to wrap up where we started, I do think that Hollywood does a cop-out with this dystopian future. It's easier to make the robots the bad guys. I, for one, am happy about C-3PO and R2-D2. I welcome them as friends and collaborators. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it'll be a friendly future and not a scary future. Agreed. Good talking to you, Dan. Always a pleasure. When we start off, I never know where we're going, and that's just the nature of the world that we live in. I look forward to our next conversation. Bye. See ya.